Our primary reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 4 through 27. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And it was evening and it was morning, first day. And God said, let there be a vault in the midst of the waters and let it divide water from water. And God made the vault and it divided the water beneath the vault and from the water above the vault. And so it was. And God called the vault heavens. And it was evening and it was morning, second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered in one place so that the dry land will appear. And so it was. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering of waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth grow grass, plants yielding seed of each kind, and trees bearing fruit of each kind that has its seed within it. And so it was. And the earth put forth grass, plants yielding seed of each kind, and the trees bearing fruit that has its seed within it of each kind. And God saw that it was good. And it was evening, and it was morning, third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And they shall be signs for the fixed times and for days and years. And they shall be lights in the vaults of the heavens to light up the earth. And so it was. And God made the two great lights, the great light for dominion of day and the small light for dominion of night and the stars. And God placed them in the vault of the heavens to light up the earth and to have dominion over day and night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And it was evening and it was morning, fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with the swarm of living creatures and let fowl fly over the earth across the vault of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that crawls, which the water had swarmed forth of each kind and the winged fowl of each kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the water in the seas and let the fowl multiply in the earth. And it was evening and it was morning, fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of each kind, cattle and crawling things and wild beasts of each kind, and so it was. And God made wild beasts of each kind and cattle of every kind and crawling things on the ground of each kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make a human in our image by our likeness to hold sway over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the heavens and the cattle and the wild beast and all the crawling things that crawl upon the earth. And God created the human in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
the word of the Lord. So I became a born-again Christian as a teenager, and because it was the 90s, the first thing that you did when you became born again was that you were drafted into the culture war. And so, like, God was your general, and then, like, you were sent out to go fight the godless liberals. And so I decided the way I would represent God was to take the fight to the theory of human evolution. And I was going to take this fight um, all the way to my biology class at school. And, and I hesitate to tell you this whole story because I know like with cancel culture now, there's like no statute of limitations on like embarrassing things you do. But I'm asking you all to have mercy because I was a teenager. Um, but I, but I actually just, I trolled my, my teacher so hard in class that like anytime the word evolution even showed up in the text, I just started like peppering him with these cringy, annoying arguments again and again so that by the time we actually got to the chapter on human evolution, he announced to the class, he said, class, we are going to skip this chapter in this class syllabus. And y'all, we weren't even in South Carolina. Like, Moms for Liberty wasn't a thing yet. Like, I fought for God, and God was victorious. <laughs> this week in our Genesis 1 through 11 series, we witnessed the first five days of creation as told by the Hebrew sages. Now, if you'll remember from last week, we talked about two really important pieces of context as we read this. One, that the literary genre of Genesis is not a science textbook, and its authors never intended it to be. Even in, for example, the 4th century, a thousand years before Charles Darwin was ever born, very conservative theologians like St. Augustine understood Genesis 1 to be an allegory. The second piece of context is this. Genesis is a polemic. It is an argument against the ancient Near East cults and deities. It is trying to persuade the Hebrew listener that the Hebrew God Elohim, the God of gods, is both stronger and more loving than all the other gods out there, regardless of whether they are real or imagined. I want to add a third piece of context to Genesis 1 that I think will be helpful for us this morning. It's this. So while Genesis 1 is not scientific, it is anti-mythical. Now, this might surprise some of us because you may have heard that Genesis describes a flat earth. In fact, we do see evidence of this on the second day of creation in reference to the waters being separated from below the vault and beneath the vault. And this idea of a vault was part of the ancient Near East view of the earth. You can see it here in this drawing. If you can't see the drawing, it's basically like a terrarium. That's how people viewed what the world was. And so when you read Genesis 1, all the days correspond with this view of the world. But here's the thing. This isn't a mythical view of the world. This was, at the time, the scientific view of the world. It would be like us trying to retell the story of creation with the Big Bang cosmology and string theory. Yes, we may be totally wrong 200 years from now as we discover more things, but we would be telling a reasonable story given the academic consensus of our time. No one would look back and say, oh, well, you all were just telling these mythical fairy tales. And so if that's the case, 
what would a mythical story have looked like then? Well, in the ancient Near East, creation stories were often characterized by three things. Violence, the God sustaining the natural phenomenon, and a human-centric focus. So with violence, for example, the Babylonians said that the Euphrates and Tigris rivers were created when Marduk shot the water god Tiamat in the middle of a head, of her head with the arrow, and then he split her corpse in two. That's how you got the rivers. Yes, very graphic, I know. On top of that, these creation stories assigned natural phenomenon to the ongoing divine power of the god. So there was a water god making the water, and, and there was a, a moon god making the moonlight, and there was a sun god making the sunlight, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And lastly, mythical creation stories were human-centric in that creation corresponded to us. So, for example, in the Babylonian stories, it talks about the gods making inedible plants and also making edible vegetables. And yet, when you look at the six days of creation, you get none of this in the Bible. As we talked about last week, God doesn't use violence to dominate, but each day simply gently speaks spoken words to form the world and to fill the world. We also see the polemical angle emerge again because not only are the stars, sun, and moon not listed as being part of God on the third day, God is not making sure they stay lit, but they are not even named. They're just called the greater and lesser lights. As if to say, just in case you're thinking that the moon God is important, no, no he's not. He's just a lesser light. Even when it comes to what God creates, it's not human-centric like other ancient Near Eastern myths. On the third, fifth, and sixth day, God fills the earth with plants, sea animals, birds, and land animals, not based on their utility to humanity, but based on the animal's own species and genus. Humans don't even get their own day of creation. Humans get created on the same day as a wider part of the human family. Genesis 1 is decidedly anti-mythical when it comes to its narrative. So, what would that have taught the early Hebrews? It's this, that God, and by extension God's creation, was inherently consistent and rational. God is not finicky or capricious like the other gods. The sun is not just gonna disappear one day because you made God angry. No, God's character is stable. And so is the ground beneath your feet. The universe is not a plaything of the false gods. The universe is an unconditional gift from the true God. But also, you're not the center of it. Now, if you think such an anti-mythical narrative, one that decenters humanity as the point of reference, would have a potentially low view of humanity, right? Again, this would actually fit in with the common ancient Near Eastern creation stories. Again, the Babylonian gods, for example, they make humans to become slaves to the gods. And yet, when we get to verse 26, we find something surprising. 
And God said, let us make a human in our image by our likeness to hold sway over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the heavens and of the cattle and of the wild beasts and all the crawling things that crawl upon the earth. Now, you may have noticed here that God's pronoun usage is a little unusual. Why does God say, let us make human in our image by our likeness? Now, there's a few explanations Some say that this is a majestic royal we for God. Others say that this refers to God and the angels. The most likely possibility is that this refers to some sort of divine council of gods, which would have been borrowed from Babylonian mythology and repurposed to show that God is sovereign over any other deity. And yet personally, I view this usage of us and our as the first reference to the Trinity, the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to be clear, I don't believe this because I think the original storytellers were thinking that when they told it. They had no idea about the Trinity. But scholars agree that this usage of us and our should have been edited out by the time it was compiled in Babylon. And so the fact that it somehow remains is to this day a mystery. And I find that compelling. But also, I believe that God is simply capable of dropping hints about the true nature of God's self beyond the natural capabilities of its human authors. But what is surprising about this section is not just who is making humanity in their image, but what it means for humanity to be made in this image. And it is verse 27 that we realize that this is really one of the most incredible, most important passages in all of Scripture. And God created human in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Again, to understand how incredible this statement is, we need to contrast it with other ancient Near East myths. And when we do that, two truths stand out. One, humans and other pagan myths are never given any value that is as close to the divine. Sometimes emperors and kings get divine attributes, but never all people universally. And two, Women in pagan myths are not given equal value to men. Typically, they're not even referenced at all. And so it is absolutely stunning in a story this old, this ancient, that in direct contrast to the prevailing hierarchical views, it says that all people, not just kings, are made in the image of God. And in direct contrast to the prevailing patriarchal views, it says that all women, not just men, share in this divine nature. Still, you might be wondering, apart from ascribing dignity, what exactly does it mean to be made in the image of God? Is it because we can think like God? Is it because we can create like God? Is it because we can love like God? People have often suggested that to be made in the image of God means that it is that we have been given some attributes that we share with God. 
And to some extent that this is true, but the Hebrew word here for image is salem. And within the Hebrew scriptures, salem is the same word that gets used for idols. We were made to be idols of God. Now that sounds a little weird, maybe a little heretical, I get it, but just consider with me for a moment what idols were. Nowadays, when we say that something is an idol for someone, we usually mean that it refers directly to an object, like, oh, that guy loves his car, it's an idol for him. But in the ancient world, people were more sophisticated. When someone carved an idol out of wood or stone, they didn't worship or pray to that carved image itself, no, they worshiped or prayed to what that carved image, what that idol Represent it. What they saw in the idol on earth helped draw their heart and their mind above. To be made in the image of God then means you were made to represent God. That people would see you on earth and somehow they would be drawn to the reality of God above. But here's the thing, this doesn't happen much, right? Like at least not regularly, at least not to the point where this is actually probably a a new idea for most of us. So why is that? Well, in part, it's because most Christians have no idea how to represent God well. Case in point, when I became a Christian, I thought I was supposed to represent God by fighting for what I was told was biblical truth, so fighting all those godless liberal biology teachers. But of course, when I and other Christians act like this, very few people are drawn to God. And the ironic part is looking back that even though I was trying to be this culture warrior and not an idol of God. I had no interest in that. I still was an idol because I, as an image bearer, that was intrinsic to me being human. And so whether you want to or not, you are either drawing people to God or repulsing people from God. And so because I was misguided, I was an ugly idol, and with teenage acne, not attractive. So part of the problem is that Christians are often ugly idols, but in our first reading this morning in 2 Corinthians, it gives us the second half of the problem. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now you see, we are made in the image of God, but Jesus is the image of God. In the image of God versus is the image of God. Do you hear the distinction? In other words, non-Christians see me and I hope they are drawn to God. Non-Christians see Jesus, and they see God. But the gospel, the good news that points to the glory of Jesus, is obscured by the God of this age. 
And remember, like we talked about last week, don't get tripped up on whether this God of this age is real or it's symbolic, whether it's Satan or it's systems. The point is that people aren't seeing Jesus for who he really is. They've been blinded. You see, it's not that people who aren't Christians are inherently evil or stubborn or arrogant. This is, this is how I was taught to view people who were on the other side. In reality, there are actually cultural paradigms at work that are working against people receiving and entering into the message of the gospel. Which is why we have to be so intentional about living out the truth that we were made in the image of God. And yeah, that can still be pretty hard, right? And so I think there are two barriers to achieving this. Two ditches on either side that we can fall into as we try to understand what it means to be idols of God. The first barrier, the the first ditch, is that I would underestimate my value. Y'all, if I don't think I'm valuable, if I don't think my life is precious, I will not represent God well. You see, if people look at me and my life doesn't reflect the truth that I am objectively worthy of love because I am made by a loving God, then people will not be drawn to God. It's like when you're in that fancy French restaurant and the menu's all in French, and so you don't really know what to order. So you just kind of look over at the other table and you see like that filet mignon and it's got all the garnishes and it's beautifully prepared and you're like, I'll have what he's having. But it can also be the opposite, right? You look over the table and all you see is like escargot, no garnish and it's just sitting there cold on a plate and you're like, nope, nope, don't want that. How are non-Christians seeing you? Because look, if I can't feel like I can be used by God, if I can only think of myself as some wretched plate of snails, then why would anyone want to have what I'm having? But the truth is that you were made in the image of God. You are the filet mignon. God has imputed upon you incredible worth, not because of anything you've done, not because you're a Christian, just because you exist, you are made in the image of God. The other barrier, though, the other ditch that we can fall into as we try to live as idols of God is not that I would underestimate my value, but that I would overestimate my value. And here's what I mean. I think it's on me to represent God. And it's all on me to do it. I think it's all on me to save the world. And I know some of y'all, some of you are really good community justice advocates. I know you're trying to do this right now. But it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And I get it. The world clearly needs saving. But there is only one singular savior in the world and his name is Jesus. And so if I overestimate my value, I will be prone to either arrogance, a savior mentality, or I will simply burn out. 
But here's why I think it's so important to understand that we are not made in the image of a generic or strict monotheistic God, but a Trinitarian God, a God who says, let us make humanity in our image. The triune God a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exists in perfect relationship and community. This is a fundamental attribute to the nature of God. This means that when we say that we are made in the image of God, to be in that triune image means that just like the Trinity's nature is communal, my nature is also made for life-giving relationships. To participate in healthy community is essential for expressing the image of the triune God that has been stamped on me. Friends, hear this good news. To know that all people are made in the image of God can provide anyone with a sense of worth and purpose. It's a truth for all people, Christian and non-Christian, to benefit from. But we can reap the most benefit from being in this image when we have the fullest understanding of who God is. Not a generic God, but a triune God in perfect community who not only made humanity out of love, but then dies for humanity out of love. This reveals God's nature. This reveals how God values us and you. All together then, the best way to live as idols of God, the most effective way to represent God is to love ourselves because we know our true value and to love others in our community because we know our true nature. Then people will look at you, even if they've been blinded by the gods of this world, and their eyes will be drawn up to see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, the perfect and true image of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> All right, Colin. Does biblical Hebrew have gender? Yes, uh, and this all, we didn't even have time for this, but it's really interesting when you get into Genesis 1 and 2. Um, there is gender, uh, words are gendered, but also Adam is gender neutral. He's like, an, like he doesn't have gender until Eve comes along. So it's, it's, we're going to have some interesting things maybe in the next couple of weeks. But yeah, biblical Hebrew is, is interesting and quirky and fun. Interesting. All right. If every human is made in the image of God and we can reflect his character by loving our neighbors and living in community, why become a Christian with their claim of exclusivity? Why not just be an inclusive human that loves? I mean, I think that's a great starting point, right? So, yeah. and, and this is this is why I, I think sometimes the, the Christian message, if it starts, if it starts from this place of like you're a wretched person and you need to get saved, that's not a biblical approach because you're actually, you need to start with, you are made in the image of God. That's, that's your starting point. Um, but the reason why we have Christianity is, this is going to be a long story as we, we go through the Bible, but the point is that what God has created is good. People end up screwing up. And so we end up screwing things up through all sorts of 
injustices and systems and problems and selfishness and being our own gods and we want to do our own thing, it creates a huge mess of the world. And God sees his creation falling apart and says, I made you in my image. I love you. I'm going to pursue you. I'm not going to let you destroy yourselves. And so Christianity is this story of God pursuing us and rescuing us and bringing healing and restoration back so that we can best image the image of God as we are meant to do. Because I think most of us would be here and go, yeah, I like this idea of being made in the image of God, but I recognize that like, I don't do that well, and that's hard, and I'm probably on the struggle bus for that. And so Christianity is, is the invitation uh, and, and what God has accomplished to restore us back to the way we were meant to be. And so yes, that is an exclusive story, but it's also radically inclusive because it is inviting all people just how God made all people. That was a really amazing answer. Well done, Colin. You're starting 2024 strong. All right. Somewhat simple question. Okay, thanks. But if God has made us in his image, then how come we sin? Yeah. Um, this is, we're going to get this in chapter three in Genesis. It's going to be some fun stuff. Um, yeah, we, we sin. This is, this, is, this is my fundamental basic theology on sin. Um, when we do not believe that God is either strong enough or good enough, uh, this is the Hebrew dilemma as well. Uh, then we choose to try to take control for ourselves. And when we do that, that leads to destructive consequences. So if I think God is good, but I don't think God can help me, then I'm like, well, shoot, I'm on my own. I got to go do my own thing. Or I think maybe uh, God is strong, but God doesn't really care about me. Well, then shoot, I got to go do my own thing. And history is all these stories of people saying, I got to take control. I got to look out for myself. God doesn't love me, care about me, or strong enough for me. And so I'm going to wrangle control. And when we do that, we see this like reverberation uh, of sin, right? And when we talk about sin, sin is unjustified harm committed to ourselves or our neighbor. And so, yeah, that's, that's the story of humanity. And so the story of the gospel is bringing us back into this idea of you can trust God. God loves you. God cares about you. And God is strong enough. That's great, and I can't wait to hear more in a couple weeks. If y'all have any other questions, feel free to text them in. Colin will address them tomorrow on Facebook Live. Spoiler alert, there is a question about dinosaurs. Yes.